Good morning. Welcome. How you doing? Take a moment. Give that person next to you a high five. Tell them they look nice this morning. Come on. want to welcome you to City Church. My name is Mike and I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you have joined us on this Sunday, March 11th. You may know our church is one church in five locations. And so right now we have a church in Hartford and Bridgeport and Middletown and North Campus here in New Haven. Can we say hello? Come on, just say hello to one another. Yeah. Good to be here together. Over the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Borderlands, and so we started two weeks talking about uh, the issue of human life, and last week we covered the uh, just complex topic of gender, and so I know for me, I've really appreciated how our lead pastor has covered these topics and how he's navigated them, so can we take a moment and just thank him? Yeah, just honor him. Really appreciate that. This morning, uh, we're going to be tackling the topic of relationships. And next week, we're going to wrap up our sermon series on the topic of sex. And so a couple more bruisers to get through. And we're excited to see what God has to say about these incredibly important issues. All right? If you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 12? We're going to be looking at two verses, um, 9 and 10. So the words will be on the screen, or you can read along. And Paul writes this. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of the message is A New Pattern. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you, and we submit our hearts and our minds to you. God, we believe that you are speaking to us this morning, and so we ask, God, that you would help us to listen. God, we ask that your word would shine forth, that the truth of the scriptures would come forth this morning. And in your name we pray, amen. Amen. You know, I don't know if you heard, but last month, Britain appointed its first minister of loneliness. A minister of loneliness, a position that the prime minister said has been created in order to address the sad realities of modern life. Public health leaders uh, really praised it because <clears throat> in the last several years, there have been a lot of studies that have come out that have begun linking issues of, of loneliness um, and social, you know, being stuck by yourself. Uh, they've been linking it with issues like diabetes, with cancer, with high blood pressure, and even in some cases, suicide. Studies have begun to show that, that the effects of loneliness on a person's lifespan is similar to smoking about 15 cigarettes a day. There's a recent survey called the General Survey, the General Social Survey. And in polling Americans, it shows that in the last couple of decades, Americans have become three times more lonely, that three times the number of Americans are calling themselves lonely. They ask a question, how many close friends do you have? And the most common response is zero. See, it seems like we're supposed to be more connected than ever. Social media has allowed us to stay in contact with people from all over the world, from past life, from current life. And so we should be, in some ways, seemingly more connected with others. But the data is showing that it's actually quite the opposite happening. If you're here this morning, you know you don't need data to show you that things seem to be broken in this area, right? We know what it's like to have difficulty with a coworker at work. Maybe your marriage right now is experiencing difficulty. Maybe you're a parent here and you're feeling estranged from your child. Maybe you've been dating and you go out on a couple dates and then you never hear from the person. Maybe you had a best friend and you lost contact with them. 
Maybe something happened, a fight blew up, and you were never able to fix it. There's brokenness in our relationships, is there not? The question we've got to ask ourselves is it seems like in our world of of increasing medical knowledge, we understand psychology better, we understand the human mind, we should be getting better at relationships, shouldn't we? And yet I know in my life, and probably in yours as well, it seems like the opposite is actually happening. Like deterioration continues to happen instead of growth. And the data supports it as well. That for our country, for mankind, relationships seem to be getting more difficult rather than more fruitful and more easy. What I want you to see this morning is is in our text, God wants to give us a new pattern for relationships. What I want you to see is that there are four steps held in these two little verses that begin to build on one another, that build on one another. And if we will learn to adopt them, if we will grab hold of the truths held within, that our lives can actually be filled with the life-giving relationships that our hearts so deeply long for. So I wonder, what does God have to say to us through this, all right? Paul begins by saying this, let love be genuine, all right? Now, love is kind of a strange word, right? Because it's it's a word that we use almost flippantly. Like, for example, like, I love New Haven pizza, right? Can I get an amen? Anybody? Like, with no disrespect to our other campuses, like, New Haven's got the pizza, right? You know, so like, we love New Haven pizza, but we also... We also love things in a grander way. You know, love is one of those words that it actually has the ability to change the course of our lives. I mean, think about that time that someone really close to you said, I love you for the very first time. Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a parent, maybe it's a a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend. That word has the ability to change things in a moment. I remember being 20 years old, standing in a doorway in my parents' house, and my wife said those words to me for the very first time, and I knew she'd never said those to another guy before. And in a moment, it shifted, right? Something changes when we hear those words. And so God takes that word, a word that we use to describe, you know, affection towards something, and he adds to it. You know, Jesus comes along, and he says, listen, love others, in John 15, 12, the way that I have loved you. It reads like this. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And you read that and you go, how is that even possible? See, the supreme demonstration of the love of Christ is that he would go to the cross for us, right? That he would, he would bear our sins on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God in order to display what real love looks like. In such a way that he could then tell us, this is how I want you to love others, the way I have loved you. Greater man has no love, he said, than he who lays down his life for his friends. And so biblical love, God tells us, and Christ tells us, is the type of love that is self-sacrificing, that is others-focused, and is constantly looking out towards others and saying, what are the needs in that person's life? So Paul comes along here in Romans chapter 12, and he says, Let love, with that biblical definition, be genuine. Let love that is self-sacrificing, that looks to others' needs first, be genuine. And what exactly does he mean by that? This word genuine uh, could also be translated sincere. And what he's talking about is in those days, dishonest merchants who would sell pottery or clay would get a pot that had cracks in it. And instead of throwing it out, they would fill it with wax and then paint over it. And so the word sincere was something that they would stamp on a pot that said, without wax, all right, without falsities, without brokenness. And so Paul comes along and he says, let love be genuine. 
Let love be without defect. I don't know about you. As I look at my own life, I look at the ways I love others. So often it feels like there's the defect of selfishness, of anger, of bitterness, of jealousy. It's like let love be genuine. It feels like so often my love is anything but pure and genuine. Why is that? Why is it so hard for us to care for others in a way that is constantly looking out for their best, that is self-sacrificing, that naturally lays down our life for others? Why is that? You know, deep in the heart of every person is an ache. There's this gnawing hunger inside of us that wants to know that we're valued, that wants to know that we're worth something, that wants to know that our life matters. And oftentimes we turn to one of two things to answer those questions. Sometimes we look to achievement and success to see whether or not we matter. But if we don't turn there, oftentimes we turn to relationships. And so we begin to look at these people in our lives and we say, boy, can you fill that need for me? I've got questions about who I am. I've got questions about my identity. This quest for identity that I find myself on, I'm going to have you actually be the answer to those things. The problem is... It's a creature looking to another creature to answer the, only, the question that only the creator is meant to answer. Under the weight of those expectations, every single human relationship begins to get crushed. Because no relationship is meant to be held up underneath the weight of those expectations. Things begin to get choked out. The relationship becomes toxic and codependent. See, the moment we ask a person to provide something that only God is meant to provide is the moment that relationship begins to crumble because the foundation there is lacking. And we see this come out in so many different ways, don't we? Maybe you found yourself getting uh, jealous when you heard that a friend was hanging out with someone else. You weren't really sure why that was, but maybe you began to realize that you actually liked that people knew you as Susie's best friend or as Jim's go-to guy. Maybe in your marriage you find yourself finding your worth and your value in who you are as a husband. And things begin to break down when you have your first conflict with your wife. Because she comes to you and she says, hey listen, you're failing in these couple of areas and I'd like to see you grow. But you've built your value on your performance as a husband and so it crushes you when you find out that you're not doing it well. See, when we begin to build our identity on who we are as a friend or what that person gives to us, we inevitably fall apart, and so does the relationship. Maybe you're a parent here, and and you're at a parenting group, and you find yourself getting increasingly frustrated because your child is acting out. And we've all been in those situations where a parent is, like, talking to someone else, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, that's nice. And you're like, knock it off. Yeah, isn't that great? You know, stop it, you know. And it's like, oh, what's happening right now? And so they go home, and they're wondering, why is this rattling me so bad? Could it be that your child acting out is affecting the way you think your friends see you as a parent? Because you're building your worth and your value in who you are as a parent. Your boss criticizes you, and you go home. And you don't know how to handle it. Could it be because you're finding your identity not in God, but in your performance at work? And on the flip side, we've all known how just wonderful it is when there's somebody who's confident in who they are, who they can be to us in our lives, right? It's someone who is easy. It's someone who's not constantly looking to us for things that we can't give them. 
And not that a relationship is perfect, but we all have that person, hopefully, or we've had that person who the relationship just had an ease. And it was just kind of flowing. And it worked well. Why? Because they knew who they were in God. See, if we're going we're gonna to love others well, the first step in getting our relationship right with others is that we need to get our relationship first and foremost right with God. And this is step one. This is what Paul says, let love be genuine. Call it this, genuine love. God is my source. Step one, genuine love. God is my source. I go to him first for my needs. The questions of identity, the questions of value, the questions of worth. I'm not looking to others for those things. I go to God first so that I can love others in a way that serves their needs rather than my own. He continues on and says this. He says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I don't know about you, but that word abhor is kind of a strange word. And the Greek word used here in this text is only used once in the entire New Testament. It's a word that means to vehemently hate to vehemently just be disgusted by something. And so you have this word abhor just contrasted with hold fast to what is good. This word that means to to glue yourself to something. Now what is Paul getting at here? What is Paul trying to describe when he says you need to hate this thing so badly and glue yourself to the opposite of it? What is it that we are supposed to hate so vehemently? From the dawn of time, there has been a whisper There's been a whisper that has showed itself in a thousand different ways. We see it in the garden. We see it all throughout the Bible. And we see it in our own lives. And the whisper says this. I know better. I know better. This is a lie that Adam and Eve believed which caused the very first fracture of a relationship. It's a lie that you and I so quickly Uh, find ourselves saying, God, listen, I know you say one thing, but I know better. I know better. There's something in us that desperately longs to play God. There's something in us that's tempted to believe that, yeah, God, I know you said that, but I know better. So Paul is saying there's something in you that's going to want to play God. You've got to see that thing. You've got to become familiar with it and hate it and hold fast, glue yourself to the truth that says, God, even if I don't get it, I trust you. Even if it doesn't make sense to me, I believe you. Even if you say it and it doesn't make sense to me, I'll step into that truth better than my own. Last week, we heard about the inner compass that Justin talked about and how the inner compass, inner compass leads us in all sorts of wacky different ways. We take that inner compass and we submit it to God. God wants to get a hold of you this morning. There's things in your life right now, decisions you need to make in which God wants you to say, God, I will choose to trust you. But so often, we find ourselves giving in to the lie that says, I know better, don't we? I see it in myself. I'm sure you see it in yourself in a, a myriad of different ways. For some of us, it comes out like we know that God is, has really designed us to live in community with one another, in close relationship. And so we know that we're supposed to be working towards those things. But honestly, we've been burned in the past. And things are difficult in that area. So rather than actually pressing in and embracing the difficulty of relationship, we just keep people at a distance. And we just decide to kind of do things on our own. There's the truth that God has plans for sex. And he says, listen, sex is supposed to be saved for marriage. But honestly, I know better. 
God, I got to figure out if I'm compatible. So yeah, we're going to move in together even though I know it's not your design. Why? Because I know, I know better. I know better. Perhaps for some of you it's, it's embracing substitutes, right? So we know again that God has designed us for community. But rather than doing some of the difficulty of that and clearing time in our schedule, we settle for the substitute of social media. So we end up with 900 friends on Facebook, but not a single person that we, would, we could call when we needed them because we've settled for substitutes. There's cl- conflict in a relationship that we have, and we know that God tells us to be at peace with all people. But rather than calling that person up and sitting down with them and really getting to the root of what's happened, we send a little text message and we hope the problem goes away. My wife and I, five or six years ago, made a rule. No apologizing over text. All right? No apologizing over text. The relationship is too important. There's something deep inside of us that wants to play God. And so what Paul wants us to see is that, listen, you've got to see that thing that wants to be God, and you've got to kill it. You've got to kill it. And so you ask yourself the question, all right, Mike, honestly, I get that God doesn't really like that, but does it really matter... Like, okay, it's going to make God mad if we move in together, but like, why does that actually matter? It's not coincidence that God put Adam and Eve in the garden and asked them to tend it. He's been asking you and I to do the very same thing ever since. See, our hearts operate like a garden. They need to be tended. They need to be cultivated. They need to be cared for. And in my garden of my heart, there are these ugly weeds growing up at all times. There are weeds of bitterness. There are weeds of anger. There are weeds of jealousy. And when I walk closely with God, I'm able to see those things on a regular basis, call them out for what they are, and pluck the root out of them. But when I step outside of God's will, and I do so in a way that is willful, I begin to quiet God's voice in my life. I sit down to read my Bible, and I don't really want to pray because I know where the conviction of the Holy Spirit is going to come. And so I begin to just distance myself from the voice of God. The problem is, what you don't realize, is you're distancing yourself from the very mechanism God has put in your life in order to pull up those weeds. And so you begin to pull yourself away from God, not, un- not seeing that the weed of bitterness is beginning to grow high. The weed of jealousy is beginning to grow high. And you've stopped asking the question, God, what is in my heart that's broken? We've stopped resounding with David and the Psalms where he says, search my heart and see what is unclean in me. When we stop asking those questions, these weeds begin to grow and they choke out the life of our relationships. If you don't tend the garden of your heart, it will rob you of the sweetness and intimacy and joy that relationships are meant to give. And so you have to tend the garden of your heart. And it's the garden that is tended with holiness that makes room for relationships to grow healthy. You've got to kill that lie inside of you that says, I know better. That's step two. We call it humility. I submit my wisdom to his revelation. So we start with step one. We learn how we're supposed to relate with God. Step two is all about how we relate to our own heart, how we relate to that thing inside of us that wants to play God. And then we get to step three, and Paul begins to tell us how we are to relate to others. All right? He says this, love one another with brotherly affection. 
And the word here that's, that's uh, translated into brotherly affection is this word that conjures up an image of a warm family, of, of tender affection between a family, you know, like husbands and wives. And so what he's, what he's painting for us here is a picture in which the family of God is meant to interact with one another in much the same way a healthy family interacts with one another. And he's described for us in other places what a family is supposed to look like. He says this, In 1 Timothy 5, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men treat as brothers. Older women you are to treat as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. So what does it look like for us to relate to others? Well, Paul tells us, you're supposed to relate to others as a family. But this is tricky, right? Can we be honest about that? This is a little tricky because I don't know, am I allowed to have friendships with a woman? As a married man, can I have friendships with a girl who's married? You know, what does it look like for guys and girls to have friendships? What does it look like to date in a healthy way? What does a thriving marriage look like? You know, there are these questions that we don't really necessarily have easy answers to. And so what we're asking here is what do we do with them? Are we supposed to just step back from the things that are a little bit difficult? Are we supposed to figure out a proper way to interact with those things? Paul would tell us in other places that it is absolutely critical for us to develop these healthy relationships. So me, as a married guy, can I have relationships with another woman? Yes, I have to. I have to do it in order for the family of God to be fully expressed. But I've got to do it the way that God has designed. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is what does it look like to be a healthy family? What are the things that create a healthy family? And certainly there are a lot of different things. You know, there's a deep commitment to one another. Certainly they have fun together. They're on mission together. They're deeply, again, committed to one another. But when Paul begins to describe a family, he doesn't use those things, does he? He begins to describe the roles that each are supposed to play. So he says, relate to an older man like you would a dad. Relate to an older woman like you would a mom. And just like in a normal family, things get all out of sync when roles get mixed up, all right? So if you're relating to your dad the way you relate to your daughter, things are a little bit out of sync. I remember being in high school, and uh, a friend said, you know, I used to think it was so great that this other friend's mom let her do anything. You know, she just wanted to be her friend. She could listen to whatever music she wanted. She let her stay out late. She never imposed any boundaries. But then this other friend goes off to college, and her life goes off the rails, And my friend has this revelation where she says, I'm so glad that my parents loved me enough to be my parent and not just my friend. See, when the roles get out of sync, everything begins to get messed up. See, it's critical that you and I know the role that we're meant to play in the family of God and that we know the role that others are meant to play as well. And so what does this look like? I wonder if you've ever actually asked that question. What role am I meant to play in the family of God? And some of you are like, no, I've actually never asked that question. I have no idea. You know, what God wants to show us this morning is that the first step in doing this is we begin to order and we put in priority the relationships that he's put in our lives. We we give a priority to certain relationships over over other ones. And so for me, what that looks like is, is I'm first and foremost the son of God. Then I'm a husband to my wife. I'm a dad to my daughters. I've got some key relationships that mean a lot to me. And then a broader group of friends and acquaintances. All right? 
Maybe you're here and you're a single person. What that might look like for you is, you know, you are first um, a son or daughter of God, and then you've got, you know, one, two, three really close relationships of the same gender that mean a lot to you, and then you've got a group of friends you hang out with, and then a series of acquaintances. And what you've got to see is that how God wants you to prioritize these things is that it's almost like this idea of concentric circles, all right? That in the middle is who you are in God, and then these relationships, because those need to order the amount of access that people get to you. They need to order the amount of access that you give to other people, all right? Some of us need to learn a new word this morning, all right? The word is boundaries, all right? Boundaries. Some of us are like, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you in just a moment. What does boundaries mean? You know, we don't even know. Some of us have never said the word before, no. Right? Say it with me. No. There are boundaries in our lives. And in the world of cell phones, this is increasingly difficult. Because people have uh, come to expect immediate access to everyone all the time. So somebody sends you a text message, and then an hour later they send you the follow-up. And they say, hey, did you get my text message? It's like, yes. Yes, I did. You know, why didn't you respond? Because I was busy, you know. But that doesn't go over well. It's this idea of immediate access, that everyone should have immediate access to other people, and it just doesn't work. You know, in our house, um, you know, if I'm watching a movie with my wife and somebody calls, unless it is an emergency, I look at it, I hit that beautiful little button that makes it stop vibrating, and I put it back down, you know? On Saturdays, my, my little girl and I, oftentimes I'll wake her up from her nap and I'll go bounding into her bedroom and I'll just wake her up and she'll be all groggy and I'll say, hey, you want to go get a donut and go hiking? And she like, you know, the fog clears and then she realizes what I'm asking. It's like, yes! And it's one of my favorite things to do. And I can tell you that there are very few phone calls I'm going to take while I'm hiking with my little girl. Because there's an order of priority in my life. You don't give the same amount of access to everyone. Different people are meant to have different roles, and those roles have different levels of access to you. The problem is, if you give the same amount of access to every single person in your life, you eventually blow up the very relationships you're called to first and foremost. All right? Boundaries create a framework that these relationships are meant to hang on. All right? Boundaries give us something that we can actually order these things. And we think it's spiritual, don't we? That we should be available to all people at all times. But it's not healthy, it's not sustainable, and everyone loses when you do this. So you ask yourself the question, Mike, how do I do this? All right, if I, if I go home today and I ask myself the question, all right, what are the priorities of the relationships in my life? All right, you order them. What do I actually do? Well, you, you begin to look at the different people in your life and you say, listen, based on who I am and the people that God has called me to first and foremost, am I relating to this person in an appropriate way? You know, is this an acquaintance that I'm giving access that only a, a daughter should have, you know? Because if you're doing that, then your daughter's getting robbed. So you're beginning to ask yourself, what is the order in which these are supposed to happen? And it has all sorts of implications, all right? It's why, frankly, it doesn't make sense if you love Jesus to date someone who's not a Christian, right? Because your concentric circle, you say, I am a lover of Jesus first. And if that doesn't match up with this person, then it's probably not a wise decision. It's why we have all these different things, like you've got a best friend. Listen, if your best friend, the person you share every hope and dream and desire with, is someone of the opposite sex, listen, you've seen the romantic comedies. It never goes well right? It never ends well. It's not how God has designed it to be. You're married and you're flirting with that coworker at, at work. Knock it off. 
Knock it off, because based on the relationships that God has called you to, that is not appropriate. See, there's a priority that God wants to build into your life that allows you to see people in the right way. It allows you to invest your time in an appropriate way. But when every relationship in my life is ordered and is given the right amount of priority, it's given the space to grow and flourish. It's like in a forest. You've seen how oftentimes when there's too many trees, they have to cut them down in order to get a few trees the space to grow. You've got to give a few things the space to grow and go from there. And that's step three. This family mindset. We call it this, family. I operate with healthy Boundaries. It doesn't mean you say no to everything. It doesn't mean you're unfriendly. It doesn't mean you don't go help your friend move. It just means you're constantly asking the question, the question, based on who I am and based on what I've been called to, based on who that person is and what they've been called to, is this appropriate behavior? Step three, family. I operate with healthy boundaries. Lastly, Paul finishes by saying this. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another and showing honor. This idea of honor is about seeing the worth in someone. God modeled this for us when he, he came. He made, uh, <clears throat> he made us sla- from slaves to sons, right? He takes us as we were and he elevates us to a place of high priority. Honor in relationship is all about seeing two people working towards one another, seeking to outdo one another and calling forth the best of each other of calling forth what we call the greatness in one another. Honor is about seeing a person not as they are, but as who God has designed them to be, and doing everything we can to push them towards that. So sometimes that means challenging them. Sometimes it means uh, encouraging them. It's this constant dance between two people of saying, how can I, as a person in your life, call forth the greatness that I see God has put in you. And yeah, I'll encourage you when I need to. And yeah, I will uh, I'll correct you when I need to. But it's this intentional attention to who God has called them to be. And so often we see this breakdown in, in a lot of different ways, don't we? When we miss step one, we miss seeing God as our source of identity and value and worth. We end up just operating from this self-serving paradigm where we're going to people based on our needs and based not on their needs or their best. And I see this, you know, I'll have a guy come to me often and he'll say, hey, how, how far can I go with my girlfriend before marriage? And on, on, the, on the surface, it sounds noble that he's asking, but if you peel back the layer, you understand he's looking at it from the whole different, uh, from the whole opposite way he should be. The question should be not, how far can I go with this person before marriage? The question should be, based on the fact that they are a daughter in God first, what are the appropriate boundaries I should put in place for our relationship? And so I often think to myself, all right, well, she is first and foremost a daughter of God. Why don't you ask God how far he would have you go with his daughter? Because I can tell you as a dad of two daughters, if someone comes to me and says, "Uh, hey, Mr. Schnepp, how far would you mind if I uh, went with your daughter before marriage? I would say, get your grimy hands off my little girl until... You marry her. And if you touch her, I'll chop your hands off, all right? See, we're asking the wrong questions. We're coming about it from the wrong perspective. This is not your girlfriend first. That's about sixth on her level of priorities. She's first and foremost a daughter of God. See, we're going at it by my needs, not on trying to call forth the greatness in her. We see this often in male-female relationships where this can break down. 
Sometimes we don't even need know that needs are being met in that relationship, you know, questions of worth and value. And so we find ourselves spending a little too much time with someone, or we find ourselves just giving a little bit too much of our heart away. Sometimes we've got relationships in which the other people, the other person thinks that we're genuinely interested in romance, and we're just looking at them like a friend. The problem is, if we're leading people on, we are not honoring who they are. And so that's why I love this idea of outdo one another in showing honor. In a friendship like that, it's your job, whose job? Both of your jobs, to make it very clear where you are at in this relationship and honor them. Honor them. Honor them. Honor means when you've wronged someone, you make restitution. When you borrow money, you pay it back. You ask for forgiveness. Honor is about valuing the other person. Yes, it's uncomfortable to have that conversation with them. Yes, it's uncomfortable to ask for forgiveness. But you honor them. And you do what's best for them. Not just what you want to do. Because you approach them based on their good. Not on your needs. It means giving intentional attention. To that first call that God has put on their lives. And that's step four. We're going to call it honor. I call forth greatness in others. What I want you to see this morning is the secret of this is in its order. The order that says, man, before you go to anyone else, you've got to receive from God first. Before you even try to interact with anyone else, you've got to interact with yourself You learn what it looks like to have different roles and priorities for your relationships in your life, and then you learn what it looks like to honor those relationships appropriately. But so often, we get the order out of sync, and it messes things up. Some of us get God's heart for good and evil before we get a revelation of his grace, and our church becomes known as judgmental and harsh rather than loving. Why? Because we went to step two before step one. Things get all sorts of, excuse me, out of whack. If I try to love my brother well without having an understanding of good and evil, then I never call forth the things in him that do not honor God. And I never help him grow. If before I've understood who I am in God, I try and honor somebody else, it just turns to weird worship and idolatry of that person. Because I still have big questions that need answers. And the relationship starts to get murky and weird. Because I've got things out of order. I've got things out of order. But the secret that God has written into this little text is that the power is in the pattern. The power is in the pattern. I go to God first, and then I interact with myself, and then others. We get it out of order. It gets out of sync. And what I want you to see is that this pattern that God has for us in this issue of relationships, it always points to something bigger, doesn't it? I find it so interesting as you read Romans 12, and this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, these verses here from 9 down to 21. They all talk about how we're supposed to interact with others. And I encourage you to read the rest of it on your own time. But he has all these these different instructions for how we're to relate with other people. And then he gets to the very final verse, and he says this. He says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you read that after 11 straight verses of how to interact with other people, And you're like, Paul, where did that come from? (laughs) Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's all about the pattern. It's all about God's ultimate design for relationships. You know, as you look through the Bible, you see that 
that God is constantly working to redeem things. He's, he's making all things new, as we heard about last week. That God is constantly asking more of people in the way he says, listen, I have more for you. He's honestly, he's always looking to redeem people, to redeem the world. And we talk a lot about this here at the church. The local church is the hope of the world, and we see this pattern throughout the Bible. So there's a time in Israel where there's a famine. And what does God do? He models this by, what does he do with Joseph? Joseph gets reunited with his family and in doing so saves the people of Israel. We see Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, operating out of step two of good and evil. And God knocks him off of his horse to give him a revelation of who he is in God so that he could then use him to share the gospel with the rest of the world. To see the gospel spread from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. God is always using relationship to allow his message to go forward. And so that's why this matters. That's why it's not just a nice way to have friends. This is God's plan for the world. See, we talk about the local church being the hope of the world. It's not just an organization. What is the church? It's a bunch of relationships. It's people who have learned to interact with God and one another in order that they can then share his love with others. And so we look at this pattern that God has for us for friendships, and we see that it's about much more than us. And here's the truth that's tucked away in this little passage, is that his pattern for relationship reveals his plan for redemption. His pattern for relationship reveals his plan for redemption. And church, I got so excited this week just beginning to imagine what our church could look like if we began to adopt these patterns. See, I see a group of people who are so passionate for the people in their lives that they have begun to order these things properly. I see a church that the the rich and the poor, they can worship side by side. I see a church where gifts are being expressed and flourished, where marriages get restored, where kids grow up loving Jesus because... We've adopted God's pattern for relationship. And so the question we ask ourselves is, where have I gotten out of sync? There are a bunch of different examples that we've talked through. Some of them surely hit home. And so what I want to do is just as we worship, we begin to ask those questions. God, where have I let my relationships get out of sync? Where's the person in my life that I've begun asking to answer the wrong questions, to answer questions that only you are meant to ask. God, what would it look like for me to actually care so deeply about my neighbor, about my friend, about my coworker, that I deeply desire they get the revelation, that they are able to also embrace step one of God being their source? The question we've got to ask is what would this look like where men and women could have healthy friendships where our church could have a thriving dating culture in Jesus' name, all right? I just wonder, what would that look like? What would it look like for you personally to begin to adopt this pattern for relationships? There's something in you that knows you were meant for this. You were meant to interact with God. You were meant to have life-giving relationships. How would your life look different? And how would our church look different if we grabbed hold of this? Let's stand together. Jesus, we confess that we so easily mess this up. 
We so easily seem to get things out of sync and out of order, God. Relationships get difficult and we want to pull away. God, in our individualistic culture, sometimes it just seems easier. And yet we read your scripture and we see that we are designed to walk in community with one another. So God, in our humility, we ask, would you help us? God, would you help us? Would you help us to see what this can look like? Would you help us to adopt this pattern for relationships? God, would you be our source first? God, we so desperately need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.